From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 26. I'm very excited for this episode because I think it's very timely. Uh, We have a lot of athletes that are wrapping up their competitive seasons on the baseball front right now, and they're starting to brainstorm how to attack their offseason, not just strength and conditioning programs, but also their throwing programs, whether to shut down, how long to shut down for, how to ramp up, um, what to include. And our guest today is is an expert in this world and has spent two decades really honing in on how to attack uh, both off-season and in-season throwing programs the right way. So we're definitely going to have um, you know implications for both folks who are trying to improve performance and also athletes who are going through you know rehab return to throwing programs. So we're really excited about this episode. I know I'll learn a lot um, just like you all will. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's an all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food sourced ingredients to support your body's nutritional needs across five critical areas energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal support, and healthy aging. I'm an avid user of Athletic Greens myself in spite of the fact that I tend to be a supplement minimalist. To me, this is a product that is much more like whole food nutritional insurance as opposed to a true supplement. The ingredients have been carefully selected at the highest quality, most natural source. You get essential vitamins and minerals, digestive enzymes, prebiotics, probiotics, and that's the zero compromise approach from the company. It's plant-based, sourced from whole foods at the highest quality, You won't find harmful chemicals, artificial colors or flavors, preservatives or added sugar. Um, Really, it's perfect for folks who are gluten and dairy free, paleo, keto, vegan friendly, um, great for people who are intermittent fasting, all that fun stuff. Um, Personally, I love it for for obviously our athletes who don't get enough nutritional uh, benefits from fruits and vegetables because they don't eat enough. So it's a way to kind of plug in holes in diets. But also, I really like it for our college and professional athletes who may have complex travel schedules where quality food options aren't always at hand. Um, On a personal level, I'm a husband, father of three, and an entrepreneur. Um, We split our time between two states, and and I'm also still an avid lifter. Um, So life is inherently crazy, and it can be stressful, and sleep deprivation is definitely something that we encounter. So I rely on Athletic Greens um, for part of my immune support and believe firmly that it's it's made a big difference in keeping me healthy in spite of how crazy our lifestyle is. Um, They've got a great offer in place. If you head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, They'll get you 20 free travel packets with your purchase. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, and you can claim your special offer. Today's guest had a college playing career between the Los Angeles Pierce Junior College and Cal State University at Northridge. He then went on to the Wichita Broncos of the Jayhawk League. After his playing career wrapped up, he progressed to the college coaching ranks, spending four years at Los Angeles Mission Junior College and College of the Canyons, and then seven years as an assistant coach and consultant for the Chatham A's of the Cape Cod Baseball League. He founded Jager Sports on the principle that athletes need to develop both their physical and mental skills in order to be successful in game situations. Since its founding, he's published articles, books, and DVDs on everything from long toss to mental skills to yoga to meditation to arm care. Since 1991, he's worked with over 200 professional players, including Cy Young Award winners and All-Stars. He's also consulted with many Major League Baseball organizations and collegiate programs, ranging from UCLA and Oregon State to Auburn, Mississippi State, Cal State Fullerton, and Michigan. Please welcome to the show my good friend, Alan Jager. 
Welcome to the show, Alan. Hey, man, Eric. Always great to uh, connect with you. And for me, actually, I was, I'm excited about this because it's just uh, it's an opportunity that I get to hang out with you. So always, uh, I'm looking forward. Yeah, I'm looking forward to delving into this, man. You know, and it's it's fun too because you've you've spoken to our college crowd several years in a row, and the guys always love it. And we, you know, with those, we try to cover a, a lot of different topics in an hour. And I'm almost really really excited about this one because we're gonna hone in and like be a little bit more narrow in our scope because I think it allows us to dig deeper on a really important topic um, and some. That's, that's obviously near and dear to you. So, um, you've obviously, you know, been well versed in a wide variety of, you know, skill sets ranging from yoga to mental skills to a lot of that stuff. But obviously, your your bread and butter. You'll you'll always be known as the long toss guy, and you have a passion for, you know, both arm conditioning and reconditioning. Um, you know, where did the interest in long toss start? How did you get going with it? Well, first of all, you can't drop you can't drop an arm conditioning and reconditioning on me <laughs> like that without me commenting. <laughs> that is just so you. Um, you know the beginnings of it, it. It sounds kind of funny, but I, you know, growing up, I didn't know like none of us. Nobody knew what a quote unquote throwing program was. So that's one of the reasons why I try to even stay away from using that term. But. I didn't know what a throwing program was. All I knew is I went out and at the time I didn't know it, but I was listening to my arm. Um, as I tell everybody, <clears throat> I think the more you listen to your arm and just allow it to do what it wants to do without parameters, the more it wants to do. So for me, I had a rubber arm and maybe part of that's DNA, but I also think a lot of it is I threw things all the time. I threw baseballs, football, whatever. I just like to throw. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, so I was, Part of the answer is I was just built, I think, for long toss because um, it's intuitive and instinctive. It's not something like, hey, let's, uh, this is a whole new program where it's kind of new. To me, long toss is actually organic and natural. So let's just start there. So number one, it was more of an organic thing. Um, I think what happened is my first year in junior college where I think maybe the, 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 the awareness came to sort of a little more of a structure to it. Uh, was one of our kind of returning pitchers who everybody kind of looked up to. Um, one day I was probably airing it out, and on the way in, I probably wasn't coming in with much intent because uh, to me, I think the, the main thing was really just stretching it out because it felt gr- good. That's another reason why it's long toss to me is, is so intuitive. It just feels good to the arm, to the body, to the mind to stretch out at these gradual distances, at these gradual angles. And he said something to me that really sort of, was one of those aha moments. He said, look, when you come back in, because I came back in slowly like we still preach, but mm-hmm. he said, try to maintain your max. So let's say I was out to 300 feet. He'd say, he told me, he said, look, when you come back in, maintain that effort behind that, that, that furthest throw. You know, don't just come in and, and ease it, ease it, uh, ease up on the way in. And so something really clicked with that because there was a magic to me all of a sudden you know, maintain the intent of my max distance throw because all of a sudden, yeah, I would probably play burnout when I got closer, which is essentially pulling down and trying to throw it as, you know, as basic as hard as I could. And that felt great because it was, it was more of the explosive part of, of throwing and, and being athletic. But I think there was something about really building more of a connection with my release point, accuracy. Um, and again, building that feeling of what it's like to really pull down or pull through throws all the way back in. So I think that piece of maintain the intent mm-hmm. of your furthest throw as you come back into your throwing partner was a game changer. So I think in a, in a nutshell arc, it's sort of like 
long toss for me, it was really just something that was instinctive and, and, mm-hmm. and natural. So it's not like I ever looked at it, studied in a book. I don't really remember anybody ever telling me what to mm-hmm. do. I just feel like it, it was something that, look, the bottom line is throwing the ball with freedom and distance and athleticism. It feels good. It's, and it, 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 it's intuitive. And, uh, this guy named, actually I remember his name. He was a great guy, Danny Gonzalez. He kind of filled in this piece about the pull downs. And I would say that was really sort of the origin. You know, it's funny. You talk about maintaining the arm speed and like literally when you just said that, I am thinking back to this conversation I had with Tim Collins. So, I mean, you know, Tim five, seven, yep. you know, mid nineties yep. arm pitching in the big yep. leagues. And so Tim came up with the blue Jays organization. I mean, he was drafted at five foot five, 130 pounds. And, you know, obviously we filled him out and all that stuff. And he still goes on record as, you know, when the blue Jays adopted a lot of your methodologies as he was coming through the minor league systems, that was where Timmy surged. I mean, he was a, you know, 80 to 82 arm and combining what he did in the weight room and training wise with what he did throwing wise. That's what made him into a, you know, low to mid nineties arm. And I'll, I'll never forget this conversation. You know, in, in double A, things are very predictable, right? You're not going to throw three days in a row and you're not going to throw five out of seven days and all this stuff. But coming through the minor leagues, long tossing was very, very, you know, important for him to understand like how to throw with intent and, you know, have quantifiable feedback for your efforts. And when he got to the big leagues, he was probably two years in and we were talking about, you know, what you do in season throwing wise. And, and obviously guys aren't going 300 feet, like on, you know, when they're throwing four to five days a week out of the pen and stuff, they, they modulate their effort. And I, I said to Tim, I was like, Hey, how often do you throw like 300 feet nowadays? He goes, I do it every day. They just catch it at 60 feet. <laughs> and it's, and it got me really thinking about like a lot of the interactions with our players over the year where, you know, you talked like a Blake Trinan, which is a, an unbelievable arm. And, you know, Blake doesn't take it out super far, but a long time ago he did, you know, it was like almost like taking algebra before you go to calculus. Like it's a box you have to check developmentally. Like, are you seeing that with kids? Like it's, you know, at 15, 16, 17, just learning to throw the ball farther. Is that just something that allows you to organize your body in positions to be successful? Yeah. And I think also, I know this word's going to keep coming up. You'll probably get tired of it, but when, you know, to me, the word intuitive and instinctive, uh, I know they're very similar. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe they're basically saying the same thing, but Let's face it, when you do anything in life, whether it's, you know, running, lifting, stretching, uh, meditation, um, and there is a, and I'm going to use the word visceral, because <laughs> I don't want this to seem like a small adjustment. Yeah. There's a major effect on you, and it's intuitive. You feel it. You know it. There's an aha moment. Um, it just perpetuates itself, obviously. It's, it's, just, it's intrinsic. It's self-motivating, and it's inspiring. So I think to answer your question is when I've, you know, when we basically have a player that let's say hasn't done a lot of long toss or really doesn't know the nuances of it, and they just do it a few times, um, to me the effect is dramatic. And and I don't want to kind of be dramatic saying it, but to me that's the bottom line. And and when you when you've never gone let's say past 150, but you have 85 to 95 in your arm, mm-hmm. and slowly you build into 250, 280, 300, maybe 350. Just as you said, a lot of things. That's the thing about long toss. I love. There are so many nuances built in yeah. that once you experience it, it's sort of like you said. Once you experience it, now you're 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 dealing with a new normal. Your your mm-hmm. new your points of references now are completely shifted to where. You've experienced that. I, Zito and Joel Zamaya are two guys that jump out at me right away. Zamaya was more of a two-inning guy when he was with the Tigers. And for people nowadays, and we're already at a point where people are like, maybe Joel Zamaya was 15 <laughs> years removed. But mm-hmm. Joel at the time was the hardest thrower in the big leagues. He was up to 103 when 103 was like 120. Mm-hmm. And 
And he got to a point where he was so comfortable with his long toss because he had lived it for three or four years that he needed to go to, now he was more of a 350, 370 guy in the off season. And I'm not suggesting if you throw 45 pitches in a game the next day you go out to 300 feet, but his arm was in such good shape. It was so well conditioned and he checked the boxes, as you said, to where he essentially needed to get to about 300 feet every day. Some days more if he didn't throw as much the day before, uh, but 300 feet maybe for the average person might be more like 220, 240. But my point is this. Mm-hmm. He lived it. He experienced it. And as you said, he was able to, you know, modulate or mod- modify it according to what he needed. But I want to go back to the bottom line of what, you know, of your question, which is when you start experiencing new things in your body, when you go from a white belt to a black belt, it's a different world. And to me, I, I feel frustrated sometimes and saddened by players that have just never been exposed to, not that everybody has to go to 300 feet or everybody has to even long toss, but I think until you, until you kind of go through that door and find out what happens when I expand and stretch out and create more range of motion and maybe tap into more things that are available, it's just hard to know what's there and, and what yeah. you may be missing. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, you know, I think the other thing that, you know, I, I look at from a long-term athletic development, even kind of like a, a motor learning standpoint is, you know, you speak to range of motion is that, you know, but by nature, the pitching delivery is, you know, I think people get so caught up in that it has to be the exact same thing over and over again, right? We see, you know, videos of pitch tunneling and we, you know, we see like the, you know, the profile of like you Darvish throwing like nine different pitches all coming out of the same tunnel. Like you do the same thing over and over and over again, like, your, your throwing program can actually be different than that. Like you can add amplitude, range of motion, athleticism to your throwing program and be successful in different ways. And we always hear about, you know, the, the pitcher who gets the yips going and taking ground balls and shortstop and doing things like that. Um, I think we, a lot of times overlook that, you know, being specific all the time is actually probably problematic for a lot of our guys. And, and lawn tossing is a way to be generally specific. It's, it's a subtle deviation that, you know, maybe taps into some of that athleticism that guys don't have when they're on the mound or just throwing flat grounds or something like that. Um, well, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I'm s- sorry. I, I was just going to say, on, uh, just that on top of that, I use the word, I don't know if it makes perfect sense in, in a more biomechanic way, but I'm going to use a layman's terms word for me, which is variance. You know, I, for me, I want the variance. Like when I first started really getting involved with this and pushing long toss and, you know, long toss has been around forever, but when I really start talking about this becoming the beneficial parts of throwing with arc uphill, gradually higher and higher and higher, and then eventually gradually lower and lower and lower. One of the pushbacks of course was, well, look, I got guys, I want to stay linear. I want them repeating, you know, the same stuff you were just saying. And I said, look, I want variance. Like, I know we all talk about from a pitching point of view how important repeatability is, but let's face it, and I'm going to steal a line from Butch Thompson, which I love. Butch says, I can't sign my own name twice in a row the same (laughs) way. So to think that we're going to, quote, unquote, repeat on a mound because we're throwing darts over and over um, in a linear way, in, in what I would call robotic way, I look at the opposite way. I want to be organic. I want my athleticism freed up. I, I think that's why there's something called differential learning, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea is that you're tapping into your natural intuitive movements and those movements synchronize and organize themselves best when you're free. So to me, long toss is actually freeing up yeah. <laughs> that part of you. And, and look, at the end of the day, for whatever degrees I go uphill and quote unquote come out of my mechanics, which I, I tweet, I've tweeted this a number of times. We want guys coming out of their quote unquote mechanics, long tossing 
for whatever degree I come out of my mechanics, let's say going 300 feet at 35 degrees uphill, I'm going to resync back to my mechanics when I get back into 60 feet or, or 65 feet because 60 feet is too dangerous for most guys. The bottom line is I'm going to resync anyway, and I, and I guess I'm going to come back to that word variance, man. I feel like variance is athleticism. It's feel. It's what we. It's right brain versus yes. left brain. And so anyway, I, I just wanted to echo on top of your statement about I, I'm so into that with, with what you said about variance. Yeah, and movement variability obviously has tremendous you know impacts in terms of long term health and sustainability and all that. But you know, I, I think the other thing is on the whole, I think we we a underappreciate how much variance there actually is in the pitching delivery. And we, we had Ben Hansen from Modus on just a couple weeks ago. And one of the things that we talked about was that, you know, if you put a Modus sleeve on guys and you, you have them throw a bullpen, you'd be shocked at how much, you know, variance there is and, you know, varus torque valgus stress on the elbow, how much external rotation takes place during a typical throw. Like even on really like high level throwers, you'll see a lot of surprises to the point that it's almost, you know, made Modus change their business model from one of acute stress to one of, looking at chronic workload management and, and building, mm. you know, tissue tolerance and stuff. So that's mm. interesting. But I think, you know, the, the kind of the, the other side to all this is I, I think on the whole, our industry has maybe underappreciated how moldable our athletes are, right? That, you know, I have daughters, you know, I have three kids under the age of five and they figure things out all the time and they fall down from the jungle gym, they get back on and two days later, they're perfect with it. Um, and I think, right. you know, like we had a, a, a pitcher who literally just came in this week where his organization had told him like, you can't possibly learn a cutter. It'll interfere with your sinker. I'm like, actually, there are a lot of guys that throw sinkers that are like Blake Trinan's got a sinker and a really good cutter too. Like there are a lot of people that do it. Clearly it's possible. Um, so we, we take these dramatic leaps of face on assumptions. Um, and, and you and I both know that there are a lot of assumptions that have made it hard for, you know, long toss to, to change over the years. You know what I mean? So there, there's been resistance and, uh, you, you've been at the forefront of the charge of, of fighting, you know, the, the resistance against long toss, you know, how is it, you know, where, where was it 20 years ago? Um, how has it changed over the course of time and, and how do you, you see it now? Okay. Well, I just have to, sorry, but just go, one, I'm going to go, go that, wild, man, go any direction you just, want. <laughs> no, no, no. Just based on that last comment, um, as far as, um, presumpt, presumptuousness of, let's say a, a major league organization or a college program or a high school, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But to me, like you said, People are figuring stuff, especially nowadays with the internet and all the yeah. information out there. Kids are generally very, very educated and coaches are very educated. Trainers are very educated. And I think that as a, as a society or as a culture, I think the most important thing, and I met with an organization once and one of the first things I told them is all the kids you drafted this year, and I've brought this up now a number of times with organizations, of all the kids, every year when you draft your kids, I don't care if it's a first-round pick or a 50th round, well, now it's 40th, but, you know, or free agents or whatever, the first thing you should do is gather information. You know, find out, not just about, you know, throwing is obviously critically important to their development, but find out about their throwing habits, long toss, not long toss, distances, five-day cycle, seven-day cycle, do your homework on them. Find out yeah. what kind of training, strength and conditioning, you know, weighted balls, not weighted balls, but, you know, body blade, whatever, whatever's out there. Just do your research and then start to, and I know this is right up your alley, but then start to do the tweaking or the adapting if you need to, but to throw blanket programs on people or to, as you said, just assume, you know, almost like on a linear track, like that this is sort of a, 
the one size fits all program. And I'm and I'm not saying and, I, and look, major league. I'm not, this is going to go to your question now. You know, major league organizations, and, and again, we're talking about everybody out there, but specifically with major league organizations. I think they have made some of the greatest jumps, and, and I know you know this yeah. as well. In the last just year or two, three, it, it's just been – you talk about encouraging and inspiring. I, I, I am so thrilled like with all of the, the changes they've made. So back to your question, um, the long toss from 20 years ago. I'm sorry. Repeat it again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, where, what, what kind of resistance were you facing 20 years ago? If you, know, if you have, at, at the time, yeah. it was probably 28 organizations as opposed to 30 before expansion when you were getting going with this. But, you know, what were some of the crazy things that you heard back in the day? And, and you know, where are we at right now? Is this, are things better? Gotcha. And by the way, that one hurt the pre, the, the pre <laughs> 20, 20 out of 30 pre expansion draft. Man, that, that, just, that day, no, no. Hey. In a way, actually, it makes me feel good because it gives yes. me, it gives me more, more years of experience, right? Yeah. For, I mean, for what it's worth, like, uh, you know, I remember when the Nationals moved from Montreal to Washington and when, the, when the Rockies and, and Marlins changed up. So I've been around a little bit too. Well, well, I had a, I had a pitcher who was yeah. a fifth year sign at a Lewis and Clark state named Steve Reed. Mm-hmm. He was never drafted. He went into his short season rookie ball year as a 23 year old side armor. Um, started really doing well, was in the expansion draft of the Rockies. I think he went in the last round, which back then I think there were, it doesn't make sense. There were three rounds. Anyway, he was, um, but he got drafted. And when I talked to him, I was so excited. He was going to get a big, big league opportunity. He was more excited about being drafted. I didn't realize that he had never been drafted before. <laughs> and um, he went on to have about a 10, 12-year big league career. How about that for a cool story? That's Fifth awesome. year, senior sign. Um, look, man, the bottom line is this. I, I think if you asked me that question even three, four years ago, as, as we just talked about, mm-hmm. um, I think my answer would not have been nearly as exciting as it is now. I, 20 years ago, as you said, um, I, I felt like it was two different languages. I felt like I, w- I was speaking one language, they were speaking another. Um, I don't blame professional baseball. I think, as you know, um, just by default, you're looking at a, a system that's set up where there's a lot of people have to be on the same page. They have to have company policies, and I get <clears throat> I get that. So I don't want to um, make this seem like a, a negative on that. I think that's just part of, of, of life. But I, I do feel like the biggest frustration I had back then is that even if you don't have long toss as company policy, please do your homework on each player, especially if they're guys that you feel like, um, you know, coming in like Zito are doing things that are unique. Yep. And, but really for everybody, just, just do your homework on them and, and, and learn about them and find out why they're quote unquote an individual. Everybody's, everybody's, indiv- everybody has their own individual way of doing things in life. And so, that was my biggest pushback, Eric, to be honest with you, is yeah. more than anything. It's just please ask the questions, do your homework, do your research. You draft them for a reason. And once you're there, and then maybe go to school on them. And then look, after a year, if something is broken or you want to, you know, you know, play with stuff. But you take someone as simple analogy as Trevor Bauer, because obviously people know Trevor is just so intensely into training and development. And I'm just going to use him as a, as a simple analogy, but it would be sort of like drafting Trevor and then just saying, you know, Trevor, here's our, pro- here's our company program. You know, this is our policy. Um, this is what we have everybody do because we believe that this is what's going to keep you healthy and blah, 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 blah. And then everybody knows 
and, and there's more Trevor Bowers out there now than ever, of course, you know, from a training point of view. But it would be sort of like taking Trevor and just saying, well, Trevor, sorry, we know you do this and that and this and that, but we, and to me, that was my, to me, the, the biggest disconnect was just the inability for them to maybe have that awareness to at least check in with their players. But, you know, it took a lot of work. Uh, there were plenty of people out there like yourself, Ron Wolforth, uh, Brent Strom. I mean, there's a lot of people that have been pushing this hard for a lot of years. So luckily it's been a team effort, but, um, I think the main thing was writing articles. The main thing was meeting with any team that would meet with us, talking to any people in, in pro box. I felt like, I felt like, as you know, in the amateur world, you know, they're free to do whatever they want. And there's a lot more, um, you know, ability to kind of adapt to, to whatever they want to adapt to. But I just felt like in pro ball, which, which all these kids eventually, if they're, if they're fortunate enough to get to, they're trickling up into pro ball. And to me, you know, that should have been a, a, a space for them to continue to thrive and evolve based on what made them tick. So the good news is, is uh, kind of long answer short is, um, long answer long is that as you know, Eric, it, it's just, things have changed radically in the last few years. They've been changing over the last 10 years, I'd say. But I just think what's happening now is that everybody is starting to get more and more educated by what's best for the player. Mm -hmm. um, everybody's realizing now that each player um, goes to Cressy in the offseason or goes to Wolforth or Driveline or does long toss. And, and now they're realizing that, wow, there's a lot of things out there. They're going, they're coming out of programs like Vanderbilt and Oregon State and UCLA and Auburn and, and what have you. And now they're realizing, wow, these kids are coming into pro ball incredibly educated, incredibly prepared. And I think wisely, as you know, professional baseball is proving that point because now they're hiring a lot of yeah. college coaches. They're hiring people from driveline. I'm sure you have sent more than your share of guys yep. into pro ball um, that have worked on your staff. Yep. And to me, that's healthy. That's yeah. just a healthy thing. So anyway, yeah, that was a long one, man. How, how <laughs> many, I mean, I, if you, you know, obviously you have to name organizations, but if you know, out of the 30 organizations left, like how many do we have that are still stubbornly resisting, you know, long toss? I would say, where maybe five years ago it was kind of a 10, 10, 10, 10, great, 10 sort of, you can work with it and 10 pretty resistant. I'd say there's maybe two, um, one or two that to me are still pretty set on a firm number. Yep. Um, one of those two I feel like is moving in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think there's maybe four or six that kind of, uh, they're moving in the right direction. I still feel like there's, uh, let's put it this way. I'd say other than a couple of teams that, and one in particular that I think are still pretty set on, on some, some numbers. I think everybody out there now, I think that the, the cat is out of the bag and mm -hmm. I'm so relieved yeah. <laughs> and grateful. And, um, and I think if of the one or two teams, I think even they're going to have to change because it's starting to get, you know, I think to a point where you get overwhelmed by numbers, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, not only that, I think sometimes like, you know, certainly you pound the pavement and, you know, I, I see you every year, you know, at area codes and you talk to, you know, not just, you know, teams, but you're communicating directly with kids, with, you know, the coaching staffs, with advisors and agents and things like that. Like pounding the pavement's been a big part of it. But I think also it's just like being patient. Like I, you know, I'm, 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 I never ceases to amaze me how like quickly the athletes we train become 
you know, front office guys and scouts yep. and college coaches. And, um, so all of a sudden, you know, these guys you're training four years ago are, you know, are assistant GMs and things like that. So it definitely, you know, I think that's been something that's been very, very helpful for getting it more accepted is you have more of the, like the young phenoms in front offices now who are in their early to mid thirties who are, who are really pushing to be progressive and make a difference. So it's great. Yeah, and I'll just just one name that just jumps out at me. That it's funny because yes, I was thinking more along the lines of um, of organizations changing and them hiring college guys. But the other thing is, as you said, we both have plenty of kids that we've trained in over the years that maybe played for X amount of years, and now they're becoming scouts, they're becoming agents, they're becoming front office people. And I'll tell you one of my favorite ones. I'm getting goosebumps because I just. Love this guy so much, but I was uh, on a podcast with Max Weiner, which is the, I think it's the ant farm, right, in Florida. Mm -hmm. And so Max was just, you know, he was doing some private work down there. I think he was coaching at the local JC. And so um, we just had this great conversation. And and then two years later, one year later, he was with an organization. And then two years later, I believe he was, he's the pitching coordinator, as you know, for the Mariners. And Mm I think he's what, 23 or 24. Yeah, I saw an article. I think 24. Yeah. So I, I feel like, yes, what you just said is, is key, man. That the fact that this, the, the gen, the, it's almost like, I hate to use the internet generation, but you know, it's almost like the, the kids that have really started to come out of this development, let's call it the developmental age, you know, mm-hmm. um, where people are really hyper vigilant of what's going on. And I, I look for every kid that's, gone through our programs, your programs, Wolforce programs, Driveline, Randy Sullivan, you can just bounce around the country, right? Yeah. It, you can feel it. They are spreading the word not only amongst their teammates, at the schools they go to, at the professional level, but yes, they are then graduating into positions in professional baseball, and that, and that, that is such a great thing. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, one, one question I, I actually, and this is probably an, an easy answer is how do you actually define long toss? You know, cause everyone has their own in, interpretation of what is actually long. Do you have a, uh, the 15 second elevator pitch for it? Or is that something that is a much more challenging discussion? I will. Well, it's definitely a four hour answer, mm-hmm. but I'm going to give you the 15 <laughs> sec. I'll give you the 15. You, thought, right. you think I'm, you, Red, you, the thing about you is yeah, you know I'm go. not kidding, right? Red, ready, go. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the 15 second version of it is long toss to me, I think is more, it speaks, I think more to the end results. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning at some point we want to eventually stretch the arm out as far as you can, you know, where you're in tune with your body. You're obviously not overexerting, but there's a stretch. Here's a 15 second answer. Long toss is about two main phases, stretching the arm out with angles uphill as you move away from your partner and then eventually pulling down at angles, obviously getting, not obviously, but starting to progress to get lower and lower and lower and maintain the intent of your furthest throw. That to me is sort of long toss defined, but as you know, there's a lot of progressions that build up to it. Do you do that every day? Not necessarily, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, in some cases you don't do that every, every day. So, but I think that that would be the most standardized answers. There's really two parts to it, the stretching out phase and the pull down phase, assuming that you're in shape to do it. 
Awesome. So, um, one of the things that, uh, when we had Ben Hansen on a couple weeks ago, he talked about kind of like his, um, both acute and chronic workload models. And he, he made a statement that, Hey, if you, if you shut an arm down for an extended period of time, it's 120 days to get ready for, for game action. You know, it's, you know, it's a, it's a pretty big deal, right? We're looking at, you know, basically four months to be, to be ready to rock and roll. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a, I think something that is, is very near and dear to you in the concept of, or in the context of how a lot of like the, the rehab throwing protocols that are in place. That's, that's something you're very, very passionate about that you, you know, you feel like a lot of times that, you know, athletes aren't given the chance to, to build arm speed and stretch it out and, and do the things they need to do before they're, you know, thrown on a mound to, to effectively test out the surgical repair. Um, talk a little bit about your, your experience with respect to rehab throwing programs and, you know, what challenges that you see out there on the, on the horizon right now. Yeah. I mean, number one, I wrote an article maybe 10 years ago called the origin of the 120 foot throwing program. And I personally love the article from the point of view that I really, I did more research on this than maybe anything I've ever done. You know, I, I met with Dr. Yoakum in person, which was such a thrill. And what a what a great, gracious guy uh, to give me that much time, as busy as he was. Um, I know I talked to you, Mark, talked to Dr. Marcus Elliott. I talked to Stan Conte. I talked to Tom House. I, I spoke uh, through email with Greg Wilk. Uh, is Greg Wilk, right, The uh, from ASMI? Uh, I, he, yeah, I'm not Kevin, sure. Kevin Wilkes, Kevin Wilkes. Kevin, yeah. sorry. Sorry, Kevin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Kevin Wilk, who, and the reason why I wanted to get to Kevin is I know that Kevin was part of the original group um, that's with, with ASMI as far mm-hmm. as incorporating. And so through this article um, and through this research, you know, which my, it was, I was just, I think I was trying to prove my instincts right really more through the, the medical community and let them kind of give, give me the feedback of what I felt what had happened. And what had happened essentially is that when the first Tommy John, I think was 75 and the first shoulder reconstruction was 77 thereabout. And, and what Dr. Yoakum told me, which was profound is that, um, they brought in a bunch of, they brought in some doctors, some, you know, physical therapists, some athletic trainers, some baseball people. And I'm, I'm assuming they used a model similar to post knee surgery, you know, something to do with, you know, a, a similar kind of surgery and those kind of protocols. And they, they came up essentially with a, a program that they thought made sense based on, you know, all the different diversified people in the room, which I think was genius. And, and so I, I, I feel, and, and, and Dr. Yoakum said that essentially, I believe he said that, um, the James Andrews group at the time did something similar. They, they kind of came up with very similar protocols and maybe they even, uh, exchanged notes, but bottom line is this, I think the rehab program being 40 plus years old, I give them a lot of credit. I think they did a lot of smart things to be conservative and, and obviously allow the integrity of the, the elbow or shoulder or what have you to, you know, build into shape slowly, progressively, properly. Um, so I don't have necessarily, I mean, like you and I have talked about this. There's some things about even in those first two months that I don't know, like for sure, like, is that the right way. In other words, there's a certain amount of throws at a certain amount of distance. And then there's another increment, another increment. And I just don't know, like, if that's necessarily a perfect way. We've talked about things like if you make 10 throws at, at, at 45 feet and then 10 throws at 60 feet, you know, why not use the 10 throws at 45 feet to get to 60 feet rather than 40, you know, 10 throws there, stop, move out 15 feet, sort of maybe mini shock the arm. Um, but I think the main piece that I'm most concerned about, and again, this is with complete respect to the medical community because I know that they 
they've set up a good foundation. Um, yeah. And there's, a, but and, and we should put out like, there's a difference between disagree and dislike. These are wonderful people that we may just have methodological differences, even though we agree on 98% of the stuff. So that's, a, that's an important discussion to have. Very important. Yeah. And also to note that, look, what we did 45 years ago and anything, look at technology 45 years ago. Look at, look at making movies 45 years yeah. ago. So songwriting. So I think that we're not saying anything that's out of the ordinary. I think all we're just saying is that we're, look, we're, we're, you and I have always both been about the highest good. That's all we care yeah. about. We just, <laughs> we're, we're totally diplomatic, Democrat, whatever we, we want to, um, we want to make sure that, um, we're just getting to the highest good, whatever, whatever that needs to happen. And so, I looked at the, the re, I, I guess what I want people to hear most with the rehab is when you get to a point where you get to about 120 in the rehab program, and I'm essentially fine more or less with it. Um, in some programs it's 150, as you know, in some program it's 180. But, it, but what happens is, is around the 120 mark, they start integrating malware, which I'm fine because we both know that you also have to sort of, you know, in a micro way, progressively, you know, build that new, you know, the introduction of the slope. And so I'm mm -hmm. fine with introducing the work as just a, a you know, a, a baby steps, just like, just like the first day of throwing and mm -hmm. uh, rehab. My concern is this, these programs, the number usually stops around 120 to 180. And then at that point, remember, as you know, and look, I'm preaching to the choir, of course, but players for the most part are i believe from the feedback i've gotten they want the ball pretty linear they want to stay in a certain mechanical form of integrity which i get because we're mm -hmm. taking care of you know the elbow and the we're making sure everything's moving the right way that's fine do what you need to do but at some point instead of building up to full intent um onto the mound once you get to this 120 to 180 magic number my point is this, if you're good enough to start building up full intent on the mound, well, then you're good enough to start creating more range of motion. You're good enough to start creating more distance. And my big word is volume. I, I want, just like you, the, the, the program is conservative to start with, I still want that conservatism going. But the thing is, I don't want to stop being at 180 and then get into full intent mode on the mound. And, I, and even though they do that progressively too, and that's fine, the gap that I feel like is missing is... I basically say the end of the 180 program marks the beginning of the arm conditioning program. And whether you get out to 230 or 270 or 330, that's another three to four weeks. And so all I'm yeah. saying is that I want the athlete to now, <clears throat> before they get full intent off the mount, to start experiencing more angles. I want them to start using their legs, their core. I want them crow hopping. I want them getting athletic. I look at the first six, six to eight weeks of rehab and this is not a knock, but I feel like, you know, visually it's more robotic, you know, it's more robotic movements. It's more linear. It's more mm -hmm. mechanical. It's more technical. It's more left brain. Yeah. And I don't want that robot robotic sort of sense to then be taken onto the mound. I want that roboticness to be freed up and let's mm -hmm. get into the athlete and let's take our time. Let's take, you know, and, and look, we're talking about guys that are obviously, you know, big enough and strong enough that they were, let's say, 250 to 350 pre-surgery. If we're talking about a 12-year-old, yeah, you know, 120 to 150 is yeah. probably perfect. Yeah. 
But if we're talking about an 18-year-old that was out to 330 pre-surgery or a 21-year-old that was out to 350 pre-surgery or 300 pre-surgery. Mm-hmm. I'm not even saying you have to go out that far. Glenn Flasick told me a while ago, he said, look, there is some data on the time right after surgery and the relationship with the elbow and throwing the ball at the arc. And I don't know if that goes back to an older study, but... So I've been sensitive to telling guys, look, you don't need to go from 180 to, to 330 in four weeks. Maybe it's 280. Maybe it's 300. But whatever it is, I want the volume. Yes. <laughs> I want the conditioning and I want the athleticism back yep. in the, in the athlete prior mm-hmm. to getting fully intent on the mound. So that, that is my main piece that I wanted to get out. Yeah. And it's interesting. And I think it, it comes back to the goals are going to be different for different people, right? The surgeon, he wants to above all else, protect and then test out his repair. Like those are the priorities. A surgeon is really not gung ho uh, about making sure that you return to your previous level of performance. That's, that's a long-term concern, but in the short term, it isn't. And one of the things that I talk to a lot about our athlete, and and I I don't know if we've ever talked about this, this is kind of an interesting one. It's like, so think about the common scenario, right? The, the initial injury takes place, right? So let's, let's, let's assume it's a Tommy John, right? So the athlete waits, you know, a couple weeks or a month to get the surgery. um, And then he waits, you know, four months to start throwing. So effectively he's been on the shelf for five months. You know, the throwing program is very conservative right? Most don't reach full intensity off the mound until about the five month mark. So you're looking at 10 months of throwing without being at full intensity. And it can be even longer if you have an athlete that was like initially mismanaged and they had like a, an attempt at like a conservative treatment that they wound up having to have surgery. So you're, you're looking at, you know, maybe 10 to 12 months where you really haven't trained much. Now, what people don't realize is that you know, throwing off a mound is a power exercise and it's a very specific one at that. We know, we know that, you know, power is plane specific just because you have a great vertical jump doesn't mean you're going to be able to throw a baseball a long way. Um, but the bigger thing that a lot of people, I think in the medical community don't appreciate, I, I definitely don't think people even understand it in the baseball world is that if you look at the different fitness qualities that we have, power is the thing that falls off the fastest, right? Aerobic mm. fitness, maximal strength, those things stick around really easy. Like you can train mm. them one, once a month and they'll hover. Power is going to fall off in like five to seven days. And there's some, some really good writings, you know, out there in, in different contexts on this. But, you know, so you, you can't be surprised if you do a conservative throwing program and your velocity is not there at the 10 month mark. And the problem is like we assume a lot of times that we see, you know, Steven Strasburg coming back at, you know, 11 months throwing absolute fuel and, and everything being great. Or, you know, like Lance Lynn, I think came back at like nine and a half or 10 months. Like he was really, really early. Um, and, and a lot of times those are just guys that had, you know, they, you know, and I don't know the backstories on a lot of them, but you never know if they ever did much arm care beforehand. Maybe they got into the weight room a ton, you know, they did stuff entirely different. So you, you have to be really careful about comparing yourselves and just assuming that you're magically going to come back throwing absolute fuel. Um, so I, I think there's something to be said for like, you need to really get after it on your return to throwing rooms. They can't just be follow, you know, follow it and hope the velocity would magically be there when you need to let it eat. Like some guys need to be free to long toss further. Others might benefit from doing some weighted ball stuff. We have more organizations that are doing that early on. Some guys may need to be on the mound earlier so they can adjust to the slope, particularly if they have like a mechanical history. They, they didn't all build velocity the same way, so they're not going to regain it the same way either. You know, that's, that's a, uh, that's a Cressyism, man. <laughs> that's, that's powerful. 
Yeah. No, and, 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 and sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, and I, I, I think for me, and, and, and I, I definitely defer to you on this. Like, uh, one of the things I'm always stunned at is when we have the conversations with pro guys. I, I literally had it yesterday with a kid in double A who came in for an evaluation and he's like, yeah, I'm like 90 to 92. When I was in college, I was, I was three to five though. I was like, all right, let's, let's look at what you did in college. And invariably it's, <laughs> we lifted heavy stuff and I threw the ball farther and now I'm an organization and we do like, you know, body weight circuits in our weight room and we, you know, we, we don't long toss. And I'm like, this is not rocket science. This is getting back to, you know, what you did when you were really successful in many cases. Do you see that a lot? I do. And I would go back to something we talked about earlier, whether it's pro ball, uh, college, high school, travel ball teams. If you're a player and you go anywhere, <clears throat> the most important thing, if you really want to find out that I, I think that if you're in someone, someone that's going to help promote and s- support, you know, your development, the first thing they should do is they should do a, a background mm-hmm. eval on you. They should do, look, it's something I said obviously earlier about um, one of the organizations that when we met with them, I, I don't want to put this out on people like this because sometimes if you just don't know it, you don't know. I get it. So I don't want to make this sound like, again, everybody should know this. But look, at the end of the day, I go back to my first lessons I did as a pitching coach 25 years ago or 30 years ago. And I I wanted to watch them the first day they threw. I had ideas about what they should look like mechanically, which I probably would disagree. No, I'm just kidding. But you know, I had ideas about what they should do or shouldn't do or how they should long toss or not long toss. But I owed it to the kid. You know, and to watch and observe and take in and, and ask questions. And why do you do this? And why do you do that? And why do you like this? And why don't you like that? And I feel like among the bullet points I hope people take away from this conversation, Eric, as much as anything, it, whether it's a professional farm, whether it's a farm director, pitching coordinator, hitting coordinator, high school coach, it doesn't matter. Especially if a kid comes in and you can tell is well prepared, is well trained, is nuanced. The first thing to do is find out what makes them tick. Find out what has made them great. Mm-hmm. And yes, at some point, we, we want to add to that if possible or tweak or adapt. But some of these, some, I would say more kids than not are going into high school, college and professional baseball incredibly advanced, mm-hmm. incredibly in tune with their bodies and knowing their programs and knowing what makes them tick. And so I think that to me, it's, uh, it's almost, I'd call it irresponsible for you as an organization or as a college program or coach to not do the background check on them and not be interested and open to wanting to. I mean, that's the other thing you would want to adapt to them, especially if they proved to you that they're very advanced. And so I just hope that's one of the big takeaways from this conversation. It goes back to this word that you and I, we've talked about forever, which is individuality. I mean, everybody is different. So why would we plug some, why would we plug in formulas? Even if we think the formula is good, Mm-hmm. I've said, I've said, look, for someone who loves long toss as much as I do, I've said this a million times and I'll still say it. I'm not saying everybody has to long toss. I think for the most part, you taught me a word. I quote you, by the way, I give you props all the time on this one. I use this word. There are kids that are hyper, hyper mobile or yeah. hyper flexible, yeah. you know, a term I got from you and that long toss may not be good for them. And so I get that, but I, I feel like I will strongly share my opinions at some point in the most non-threatening, you know, non-passive aggressive way. I feel like that's important because I have 29 years of experience, but at the same time, I've got to do my homework. And I just feel like, as you said, Eric, it's one of the most frustrating things I've ever dealt with in the training world is 
having players go to whether it's a high school, college, again, or pro ball. And they've been doing something that is absolutely rolling for them. And they are, they have growing in leaps and bounds. And then they hit a freaking stop sign and someone comes in and says, you know, here is our plan. And we don't do this and we do that and we don't do this and we do that. And meanwhile, the kid's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> I, I do this and I do that. I do this and I do that. And now you have the kid that you just talked about. And that to me has been one of the most consistent issues mm-hmm. I have dealt with in 29 years is exactly what you just said is players that go to a, let's say they go to a high school, they roll. And it doesn't happen really anymore in colleges because I think the colleges to me are just, they're, they're rolling. But they go to college and then they get sort of told what to do. Nowadays, I feel like the colleges are, are for the most part just unbelievably from a training perspective. The colleges you go to, again, we'll just throw a Vandy out there, uh, Auburn, UCLA, whatever. You go to one of these programs, you're rolling. My goodness, if I draft you, what's the first thing I, sh- I, I got to do? I've got to know. Man, why did I take in the first round or the eighth round or the 32nd round? It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I drafted you. And last thing, by the way, while I'm on my soapbox and I was talking <laughs> to a, uh, a coach in an organization I won't mention, but um, I've had this talk with Scott Brown, with Nate Yeski, with Butch, I think, believe with Butch Thompson. And, and I've asked those guys because these guys are churning out pitchers year after year after year. And I've, and I've asked them, a DJ, Derek Johnson, mm-hmm. who I know you know well, yeah. I've asked this to Derek. How many scouts, how many scouts have talked to you pre-draft to, not just to get to know the, the player personality, but to get to know the depths mm-hmm. of their throwing, of their weighted balls, of whatever, of their long toss. Um, you're with them every day for three years, basically. Mm-hmm. I think you know them well. Now here's part two. Now this is where this, my buddy who's in one of the organizations, he's in the player development side. Here's the flip side to it. Now you've drafted Walker Bueller, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now, which the Dodgers do do, mm-hmm. now what are you going to do from the player development side to reach out to the pitching coach of the high school, of the college that this kid just spent three or four years there every day mm-hmm. <laughs> to that, to do your bonus work just in case the area scout or the scouting director didn't get it all right. Even if they got it all right, there's a lot more there, I'm sure, from the pitching coach. Mm-hmm. Why would you not call? Yeah. You do this for the hit, hitters too, but why would you not? And so, very few pitching coaches that I know, especially post draft, have been called. To uh, Scott Brown told me two organizations have followed up with him mm-hmm. um, since he's been at Vandy, and one of them does it every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and well, I've already gave one of them away, the Dodgers. But um, with Yeski, I don't know if he's had um, anybody. Mm-hmm call him post draft. Now he was the pitching coach of the year and he was probably number two pitching coach of the year, you know, two, you know, a year ago. And I'm just thinking, look, let's just try to play this as objective as possible. Mm-hmm. Let's just say you and I are, are GMs. Yeah. And we know what we know about training and development and adaptability and individuality. So now we draft 40 guys this year and sign whoever free agents. What's the first thing that we're going to do once we draft that player? We're going to talk to them, find out what makes them tick. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to call a few people. I'm going to, you know, I know we only have so much time, but if you've only drafted 20 pitchers this year, that's not that much work and you can delegate, right? If you're mm-hmm. the GM. And so I'm going to, oh, you trained your Cressy performance for the last, not three months, but for the last five years you've been with Eric? Mm-hmm. Huh. I, I, I should probably call Eric. No, yeah. actually, let me. You know, oh, you've been doing this long toss program, or you were, you've been down at the ranch for the last two and a half years, and 
wow, it's kind of what they did with Zimmer, right, with the Royals and Kyle, right? It's like, well, Zimmer went to driveline, had incredible success, and now they brought in Kyle as a consultant or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to throw it to you, right? How many times, and you don't have to, you don't have to say this if you're not comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> how many major league organizations, and not even how many organizations, yep. but how many times have you been contacted? You have probably put in, I'm going to put a, a very conservative estimate of 500 kids into professional baseball. And I'm sorry if that undercuts you. <laughs> But no, it, it, it does not happen often. Um, what I would say is that what does happen, you know, we're fortunate. We have really good relationships with a lot of the area scouts. Um, so they, they do their homework beforehand, um, in terms of getting to know the kid and, and all that, which, which everybody does. Um, and, but we both know that unfortunately a lot of those area scouts information doesn't get disseminated to the people that matter because we both know right. that in most organizations, scouting and player development are markedly different. So, so no, we don't get a lot. We, we are getting more people who will check in on players who are training with us in the off season where, you know, a minor league pitching coordinator, or even like an assistant GM, somebody like that will come and visit, particularly if it's a, you know, a highly ranking prospect. So I, I'd say the check-ins are more prevalent than they used to be. Um, I'm also, you know, I, I'm cognizant of as, as shocking as it is, I know that, you know, on the sports medicine and, and strength and conditioning side of things, most major league organizations are actually woefully understaffed. Um, right. You know, and, and so that's, you know, it was certainly we get questions on the skill development side of things relating to long toss and mound work and pitch selection, and all that. But, you know, certainly like on a strength conditioning, you know, side of things, if you go to the NBA, you go to a, you know, a roster, you've got, you know, one to three or four, you know, coach to player ratio, whereas in baseball, it might be one to 15 or 20. Um, so the, the numbers, I'm sure, push a lot of that out. So, I, I, you know, it's, I, the, it's an incredibly valid point, but I think it's, it's also somewhat of a broken system that needs to be changed in a lot of other ways too, to accommodate like those, those important discussions that we both know need to happen. Okay. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to, okay. I get what you're saying about mm-hmm. that, but let me throw this out there. Mm-hmm. You draft 40 kids a year yep. and there's some free agents and what have you. And I, and I respect the fact that yes, they may mm-hmm. be understaffed, yep. but then I'm going to throw this angle out there. We, how much time, energy and money are they putting in analytics I agree. to win games? How yep. much time and energy and money are they putting into international yeah. scouting? How much time and energy? First of all, if you sign one player like a Mike Trout yep. for <laughs> $35 million and you might have five Mike Trouts in that draft, Every kid yeah. might have a possibility to be a number one star in the big leagues or yeah. uh, an all star. So, yeah, it's, I, a, bro- it's a broken would... model. They they view it in <laughs> silos. That's the problem. You know, they don't understand that money money's money. You know, and there's plenty of it to go around in professional baseball. It's just a matter of whether you choose to put it into player development, whether you choose to put it into scouting, whether you choose to put it into big league you know contracts, whatever it may be. I know, but you have I I, I get that, but you have these finished. Semi, let's say finished products for yeah. the college kids, especially. Mm-hmm. I guess what I keep coming back to is, is that it's like 95% of the job is done. Yeah. Now you're just, you're putting the icing on the cake. So there's mm-hmm. not that much work to do. So yeah. If you, if look, if I hired one guy and paid him a hundred thousand dollars a year mm-hmm. and said, here's your job after the draft, I want you to do recon on every single player we drafted. I want you to reach out to their pitching coach, you know, talk to the player, the family, find out the three closest per- people in that person's life, whether it's training, whether it's personality. Mm-hmm. But let, let's just because we're talking about training today, let, let's make sure because the personality is a whole other animal that they, yeah. they deal with, too. But let's let's just find out those things that are part of that make him tick from a training perspective. That data to me 
you talk about analytics yeah. in this day and age, and we're sinking so forget the money on analytics. How about the time and energy yeah. you're putting in analytics? And you're saying that we can't we can't find a fraction of the time that they put yeah. into analytics. Yeah, it's into amazing. Just doing a simple background on each mm-hmm. kid you draft each year. To me. And this kid, this guy who's in this organization, by the way, he's bringing the, they're going to have a meeting about it and they're going to, I'm assuming they're going to start doing it and they're going to have a major competitive advantage over all the other clubs that aren't doing this, which to me is most of them. Yep. Because to me, this is just, and maybe this is just one of those things that you don't know what you don't know, but it's, it's going to yeah. come out and at some point, I think you're get your, your inbox is going to get flooded because of this. <laughs> yeah. And you know, here's the other thing too is, and you and I both know this. What's the, what's the single biggest, type of personality that we worry about going into pro ball. It's the guy who's always smiling, who is super polite and is terrified yep. of confrontation. And he gets yep. chewed up and spit out in pro ball. Like we've yep. seen guys go in the first round where they're four seam curveball change up guys. And within six weeks, they're two seam slider cutters. Like it's just, it's a you, overhauling. Um, and, and you, I've, I've had this conversation with a lot of guys, you know, not just in baseball, but in, in life, like one of the most like important qualities you can ever learn is how to tactfully say like, screw off, you know, like, no, thank yeah. you. And it's, it's hard because you want to be a good employee and you've been taught to be a great teammate and a great soldier. And, you know, you're trying to make friends in a new organization, but you know, there are some pretty aggressive overhauls that yeah, I've seen. It doesn't happen. I, I'd say as much now as it did five years ago, but um, these are really, really important things. Well, also, and I'll say the last point on, I mean, just the last comment is this. Mm-hmm. I, I tell players, look, because I'm, you know me, I'm easygoing, I'm non-confrontational, I'm more mm-hmm. conversational, and mm-hmm. just let's get to the highest good. Mm-hmm. But I have told players, and, and I always say, do this in a nice way, do it in a diplomatic way, but look, you have two choices. One, you you stand your ground and you trust your truth because your truth knows what makes you tick. Mm-hmm. And you might ruffle some feathers, but yeah. you have a chance to have a 15 to 20 year big league career. So that's option A. Option B is that you fit in, you don't ruffle feathers, as you said, um, you don't bring this up, you hope it all works out, all kind of work through the system, and you're out of baseball, in, not for sure, but maybe you're out of baseball in three years. I'm like, if you look back three years from now, which guy did you wish you were? Mm-hmm. And we both know many, many players that look back on their career. And if they could do it all over again, it is a no-brainer. They would, they would flat out say, not in a rude way, they would flat out say, look, this is my program. This is what works for me. I'll listen. If something feels right, I can tweak a little bit, no problem. But my foundation is in place and it is strong. Yeah. And end of story. And, um, then yeah, you're right. It's, it's, um, it's one of those things where kids got to know. And, 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 and the last thing I'm sorry, I got to say on it is that unfortunately kids that go into the draft, especially, I guess the same applies to college baseball. They're assuming that they're going to be left alone. They're assuming that, um, you know, no one's going to come around and, and, and basically force things on you and take things away. So they're kind of caught off guard, unfortunately. And then there's the authority figure factor, right? Mm-hmm. And now you're sort of like, now you're, you're, you don't know what to say or what to do, but you got to, go, so maybe part of this takeaway I hope people get from this too is that be prepared, whether it's yeah. high school, college, travel ball, professional baseball, be prepared to stand your ground. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's super important feedback. So we've, 
we've talked a lot about, you know, we kind of trended in the direction of like the rehab programs. We talked about the pro side of things. Let's talk about the advice that matters for, you know, the 17 year old and his dad that are listening to this. And we found that that's actually been some of like our biggest demographic. I never expected how many kids would be listening to like this with, um, you know, with their parents, actually Pete Maki from the twins sent me a text that they were driving from Cedar Rapids to Minnesota with some of the minor league prospects for the twins. And they were like listening to it in the van together. So, you know, <laughs> for, for those guys, right. So you obviously have these two distinct phases of long toss, you know, when you break it down, there's the stretching it out and there's pulling it down. Give us some of the, the biggest mistakes for each of those phases. Like what do you see on the, the, the taking it out and what do you say on the, on the pulling it down that, that, that drive you crazy or, and, you know, you want to put out there for people to not make those mistakes? Well, the, the main mistake is, is rushing into shape. Um, <laughs> two things before I get to the actual long toss itself. One is um, maybe not deloading from the season properly, mm-hmm. not knowing the difference between rest and active rest, mm-hmm. but regardless once you get to throwing, no matter what you've done, and that's a whole other topic, obviously, the other things I just said, mm-hmm. but it, but you, generally speaking, just assume it's going to be four weeks to get yourself into great shape, assuming you're throwing at least four to five days a week. So number one is just to not rush. That's the, yep. you know, that's the conservative part of how we teach this. Um, number two, no aggressive throwing, no linear throwing, and no mound work until you've got to your furthest distance. So mm-hmm. the question comes up all the time, well, if I'm only out to – 200 feet in week two, does that mean I just stop and walk in? I'm like, no, no. You can look, if you use 50% intent to get to 200 feet or 60%, you can still maintain 60% intent on the way back in and lower the ball. To me, you're still stretching the arm out. You're not pulling down. You're, yeah, you're getting a little linear. That's fine. Um, but the main point is this. First, get the arm, what we call fully opened up, <laughs> fully stretched out. Uh, another line I love is build volume over distance. So the distance will come focus on the volume, the endurance. You're going to recover better, obviously, as you know. Um, and so those are some of the, I think, the really key points. And then the first day you pull down. So let's say 300 feet is your max distance. I actually tell guys it shouldn't be one throw at 300 feet. I want you to be able to make eight to ten. So that might take another two or three sessions. Mm-hmm. So to me, the pull-down phase starts, the real aggressive phase starts once you've got to your max distance comfortably and you're able to stay out there comfortably for, let's say, five to ten throws. And then the first day you pull down, I actually tell guys, the first two or three days of pulling down, just like long toss, do that progressively. So maybe pull down 80% on your first pull-down day, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe the next day you go out to 180 is more of a lighter stretch out day. Then the next day you're going to get after it again and pull down maybe 90% on that day. Um, so I think that would be mm-hmm. another takeaway. Maybe one last takeaway would be um, as you start incorporating your, your pull down phase, you know, go Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Don't, don't, don't go back to back days. You know, yep. you're, as you know, everything's incremental mm-hmm. within the long toss itself. The things that um, bother me the most is guys. And this was a video I love that you posted with, was it Scherzer and another guy? Yeah. Um, and Trevor got, we're out there letting it eat. Yeah. But the point of your post, which yeah. to me was yeah. made me smile so much is notice how on the way out mm-hmm. there's, there's what we call effortlessness. <laughs> there's, I call it massage, you know, yeah. let the arm stretch, let it be relaxed, let it be loose. That's why we like the ball uphill with angle it's symbolically to the brain metaphorically to the body it frees you up so what gets me is we see players come out of the get-go throwing the ball maybe not full intent but they're throwing the ball on a line yeah. with some firmness and 
we want that obviously at the end. So that's the first habit I think we, we try to really break with players is like, hey, let's just breathe. <laughs> let's yeah. relax. Uh, what does a quarterback look like when he's throwing a screen pass over the line? That's sort of how we want the first few minutes of throws to look especially. Um, and so that's number one is to keep that relaxation, that freedom um, from the get-go uh, and then stay with that all the way out. And then the other big, I think, thing that we notice is when guys do get to the pull-down phase is they think they're pulling down well, but they tend to decelerate. And it's still okay because they're getting some firmness behind the ball. But the true test to me of a of a guy learning to take that extension phase into that explosive phase properly and ideally is are you able to maintain the intent? Mm-hmm. Um, are you able to not, in other words, guys will decelerate on the way back into their throwing partner. A, they don't want to throw over the guy's head. B, they don't want it to look bad because, you know, it's over the guy's head or the guy, or they have to play chase. They're wasting time. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have our players, we, we really give them a couple of simple, um, focal points. One is, is to miss low no matter what. We have guys aim 20, 30 feet in front of their throwing partner if need be. Um, but to me, that's, I think those are some of the things within the long toss that we, we find that we troubleshoot a lot. That's awesome. Where do you feel like, you know, that those are certainly technical cues. Where do you feel like people make the biggest mistakes from like a programming standpoint? Like I know, you know, you've talked about like whether we're talking about the rehab throwing programs, like getting to the mound too quickly. What are the other ones that you, you see as big snafus that people, you know, run into? I think the main ones really is just trying to get into shape too fast is really mm-hmm. the biggest one, you know, get, not building the volume and building the, the, the stretching and the length yeah. prior to aggressive aggressiveness. Obviously that would fall in the same hands of getting on a, I mean, maybe the, I guess another one would be just getting on a mound prior to three to four weeks of fully stretching out, maybe mm-hmm. a week or two of really good pull downs. So you're mm-hmm. six weeks in. Okay. Now you can get on the mound. Yeah. Um, so maybe getting on the mound too soon, that goes back to the rehab point, of course, which is, yeah, get on the mound when they say to get on the mound because you're incrementally built, you know, getting used to the slope and you're doing that with very low impact and that's fine. Um, but don't again <laughs> get into full intent on the mound without starting to first get your throwing program back up to speed of where it should be. And that, that three to four week gap that I mentioned earlier that I think is missed. But no, listen, I think the only other thing is maybe I think some guys might, um, leading into their first throwing, I don't think maybe are as aware of active rest, a term straight from Eric Cressy. I, I feel like um, I, I don't know the proof of this or the data. I only know what makes sense to me, but I tell guys, look, no more than three weeks into your first day of throwing, maybe more like four weeks, start doing some light band work, right? Start doing some things that Cressy performance would put out there, you know, start, moving the body and then maybe weeks, the, the third week leading up to it, maybe increase the reps or increase the, the days of doing the band work. And, and then I'm, I'm big on the forward throwing motion with the band work. So maybe mm-hmm. as you get closer and closer to day one of throwing, you've really upped the reps, obviously still all in a conservative way, but you've done a lot of band work, a lot of range of motion stuff so that <clears throat> on day one of throwing, you've got a base in place. So that, that to me is another one of those, I think nuances about, you know, especially talking about the 17-year-old. And uh, and then, oh, can I throw one last one out there while we're on it? Yeah. <laughs> um, to me, the stopping and starting. Yeah. And, and this is, to me, something that we both deal with all the time, and it comes up all the time. I have no problem with a kid having a long high school season 
Um, even a, a pitcher that has a long college season into summer ball. Mm-hmm. You know what? Just keep going. Uh, obviously, monitor yourself. Hopefully, your workload is not a, a abnormal in, in, in the summer. But just at some point, let's say August, okay, now start to deload. Start your rest period. Plot your active rest building into your cycle to start your, your throwing program again. And as we both know, it unfortunately, there are so many things out there. And it's not, I'm not blaming the showcases, but there are just so many options with showcases and travel ball and fall ball and scout ball. And we, we both know there's so, so many options out there. Yeah. And to me, it, and this is again right up your alley, plot your plan, right? Yep. Get your plan. Set it up. I don't mind guys going along. I, I, we're probably way more as conservative as we are in a lot of ways. I think we're very liberal when it comes to as long as you're on a program and you're consistent and you're throwing a lot and you're religious, go for it. You know, go from, you know, there's a reason why professional guys have a long season and go down pitching winter ball for three months. I'm not saying that's for everybody, mm-hmm. but guys get away with it. And, and I've heard professional guys say, I took the winter off did hardly anything to rest my arm and then I did some stuff and then I got ready for spring training and then my arm didn't feel great spring training. I've had other guys say I pitched through all the way through the winter leagues down in the Puerto Rico or somewhere. I had only four weeks off, which I'm not recommending. I know you're not either, Mm -hmm. but they've said I've never felt more alive in spring training. And so I guess my point is this, everybody's different. Yeah. I would just say, Regardless of whether you go through these longer bouts or not, the bottom line is this stopping and starting is, is, you yeah. know, is so dangerous. Yes. And I would just say, go, go on the wave, take the wave, stay consistent, keep the continuity going. If you decide you're ready to shut down and deload, plot that out, mm-hmm. but don't, don't take off three weeks and say, well, I'm only, you know, I'm only taking off three weeks and then I have a week to kind of rebuild and then I'm going to throw in the showcase. We both know. It's just danger waiting to happen. And I think that for parents that are listening to this, um, as much as your kid is dying to pitch in that showcase or that one and all the scouts are going to be there and all the college recruiters are going to be there, pick your spots and just know that there's a time to roll with your training and your, your in-season. There's a time to deload. There's a time to rest, recover, rebuild. And then prep for your end season again. And just, it's like one long wave into the wave sort of petering out and then build the wave up again. And, yeah. and so to me, it's like a flow of the ocean versus, man, these, you, you and I both have had yeah. to deal with this where you have a kid who's at the end of his high school season. Um, and he's, he's in perfect shape for a deload, rest, mm-hmm. active rest, rebuild. Yeah. And then somewhere two and a half months down the road, <laughs> the phone rings and they decide this, they, yep. <laughs> it's, it's this huge tournament. Yep. And, and, and then he's got like only two months on the back end where he had three months or four months to really set up his next February or March. And that is just a killer. Um, yeah. It should be, it should be gradual on ramps. It should be buildups. Like you like you said, not spikes. And that's, that's something Ben talked about a couple weeks ago as well is that, you know, you, you have to look at both acute and chronic workloads. Like sometimes the worst thing you do is take two weeks off and then go out and throw a full tilt bullpen puts you in a really bad place where you'd be better off just playing catch straight through. And, you know, so that your, your workload is at least a little bit more consistent. Um, so that, what about, in, you know, within the week, like your five and your seven day models, um, you know, we, but where, where do you stand on some of those? I, I, to me, it's, mm-hmm. it's one of my favorite things to talk about because I feel mm-hmm. like I've had a lot of, I don't want to say trial and error. I've had a lot of um, discussions 
with players. Mm -hmm. I've sort of like with long toss, I've always built it based on my feel and my experience. And it seems like it has worked so well with the guys. The, this, let's start with the simplest one, the five day. Um, I think in professional baseball, like this is changing now, but because of the old four man rotation, yep. um, I guess one of my biggest concerns really is, um, a lot of organizations had guys pending on day two. Day two meaning if you yep. start day is on Sunday, then your side day would be on Tuesday. And for me, and this, I go into scory detail, I think, uh, in articles and I think it's in our, yeah. it's definitely in the manual, but the bottom line is this. Your job from Sunday, if you have a five day rotation, as you know, is to be pristine in five days. And yep. to me, the best way to be pristine in five days is to give yourself two days to recover, rest and rebuild so that on day three, which for Sunday would be now Wednesday, you can throw your side. I realize you only have one, you have one less day to your start day, but I don't want a guy limping into day two, which is your most sore day anyway. And throwing on a sore body, and then now we're really limping Wednesday, Thursday into the start. So for five days, I like day three as the side day. Um, so really what will happen, I'll give you very, very simple numbers. Everybody's different. But if you're a 300-foot guy, which is a simple number in pro ball, I would say that you know your, your, your start day is one of your best long tough days, ironically, in season. You're fully stretched out. You can pull down maybe a, a, you know less because you're going to get intent in the pen and intent on the mound. So, but stretch it out more or less completely on your start day. The day after, whereas you know, you get this question all the time. Yeah. People are like, should I take it off? Should I go light? Well, if you're in great shape and you have a great base and you're used to 300 feet, I'm going to say if you, if you didn't throw more than 100 pitches, you know, let's say you threw 70 to, to 95, you're probably going to need 150 to 180 to stretch it out. I mean, we're talking 25% effort with low impact, range of motion, blood flow, all that good stuff. Now you're setting up day two. Day two to me, guys are going to start pushing 250, 280, maybe even 300, but there's no pull downs on either of those two days. And now you've really set up day three. Now day three, you're fresh. You can get full distance if you want. You can even get some pull downs in. Um, I would actually be the guy, especially June, July, and August, to start telling professional guys on, day, on your pen days is to get on the mound, but maybe back off the intent. Mm -hmm. You know, trust that on day five, <laughs> your your accuracy is going to be just fine. But we want to keep you fresh and strong, um, especially as the season goes on. Day so day three actually is their best long toss day for me in mm -hmm. season. Day four is optional. I tell guys do whatever you want. I'd recommend yep. probably. 120, 90 to 120 feet. Uh, day five again is your, your more of your, your big long toss day. Uh, again, minimal pull down. So it's sort of like your day one, three and five are sort of your stretch out days. Mm -hmm. The other days are just recover, rebuild. Yeah. Seven day. It, I don't know if you wanted to comment real fast on that. Cause I know you have great insight. No, as well. uh, I, you know, I, I personally, you know, I'm, I'm always very reluctant to mess with guys if they're really resigned to like, I'm a day two guy or a day three guy. I think that's kind of like a sacred part of the rotation and we work around it. What I will say, I, I like a lot about the day three bullpen. Um, a, I, I like the fact that it shortens the learning loop. If you're, if you're working on something, I'd rather, you know, have you work on it 48 hours out from a start as opposed to 72 hours out. So it's, you know, it's an opportunity to, to, you know, have that feel persist over a couple of days. And that's why you even see some guys like who will throw like a, a short, you know, basically bullpen on day four, even, you know, just from a feel standpoint. Um, sure. And I think the second aspect of it is if you look at like a high low model, obviously the day of your start day zero is a very high stress day. And we know a lot of guys that love to get in a, a really good lift on day one, they, they push mm -hmm. it pretty hard because they can consolidate it. So what you realize is if you've, 
started and then had a huge lift on day one. You've dug your recovery hole really deep. You've beaten yourself up pretty bad. And I don't love the idea of throwing a bullpen right on top of that. So right. for me, if, if a guy's a big day one lift day, I try to find a lot of recovery on day two. And then we consolidate stress with their second lift and their bullpen on day three. And then they have day four to basically, like you said, it's, it's a field day. It's whatever they want. Maybe they play catch at 60 feet. Maybe they just, you know, sprint a little bit in the outfield, whatever it is. But it fits right into a high low model. A day two bullpen makes that more challenging. You have to be creative. You got to talk to guys about maybe lifting post game on the day of her start or, you know, there's, or their, their day two just tends to go really, really long. Um, so there's, there's always different ways we can attack it, but you know, I, I tend to agree with you. I'm, I'm a fan of the day three pen whenever possible. Um, what about your, what about your seven day rotation? Cause I, I love a seven day cause you can get some, some good work in. <laughs> you so, can say you get creative. <laughs> yeah. So let's say you've got a, you've got a Friday starter, um, you know, who's at a, you know, a, like a, a mid-major really wants to take a step forward. He's 88 to 90 and he wants to be 92 to 94. What are you doing with him after his Friday start over the week? Perfect. And by the way, yeah. just one note on what you said, yeah. I'm giving these, uh, you know, obviously suggestions and, yeah. and they're, and, but if a player, like if I'm talking to a pitcher and he's like, look, I, I just love my day too. It works for me. I'm going to say the same thing. I'm going to say, Hey, great. It works for you. You might try this. And by the way, every player, every pitcher I've tried this with, I believe has noticed a noticeable change for the better going mm-hmm. to day three from day two. So that's mm-hmm. also why I'm so, so feel so strongly about this, but you, mm-hmm. I learned something from you too, about the lift part of this, yeah. how it's beneficial from that perspective as well. Mm-hmm. Um, on, on the, on the seven day is more creative because, and there's it's way more luxury because now you can space out your recovery. You can rebuild slower. You mm-hmm. can really optimize your long toss days, as you know. And so what I try to do is keep more of a model of like this, Basically, your start day being on, uh, well, you said Friday, so we'll start with Friday. So your Friday night guy, again, 300 feet being a, a, a norm. Let's say you go out to 300 feet, just completely stretch it out. By the way, one other note on that, people will say, well, isn't that kind of far to go? Throw, isn't that a lot of throwing the day of your start? And my, my response to that is always this. If you are in great shape to begin with, meaning this is normal for you, then it's normal A, B, why would you not stretch your arm out to full range of motion prior to explosiveness anyway? So even if you think you're throwing yeah. too much, <clears throat> it's sort of like taking a car and saying, well, my Ferrari in fifth gear really flies, but I, I, I want to tap, I want to go into third gear a little bit and save the engine a little bit for my drive. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, no, I got to get to fifth gear to open the engine up. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's the, just, it's an important point because it's a, it's a point obviously that comes up quite a bit with people about, you know, should you throw that much? That's there's a reason why Zito, Bauer, Heron, you know, some of the guys that, you know, we, we've done work with. Um, I, I know those are three guys, but to me, it's become more of the norm. I mean, the yeah. Oregon States, the Vanderbilt, some of the programs that, um, I'm not even, you know, I can't, I can't sue for Scott for sure, but I know like some of the teams that I've done a lot of work with, um, it's just normal to see a guy pretty much fully stretched out before the game. So day yeah. one, pretty much fully stretch it out. Pull downs are sort of on you. I always recommend guys at least get some really good pull down intense, at least from about 100, 120 feet in. Um, crow hop through all this, which we haven't talked much about, always using the legs. Mm-hmm. Um, day two to me is, um, same thing. Let's say you threw 90 pitches. So, you know, I, I, I think in the manual, I, I put 90 to 180. Zito, yep. after his start, would get out to 300 feet. Mm-hmm. He was so well trained and conditioned. And I believe Bauer does the same. He gets out far the next day. 
it's not like overloading. He just, it feels good to fully stretch it out because his arm is conditioned to do it. But I'd say to be conservative 90 to 180 <laughs> the day after. Mm-hmm. Um, the second day now, I back guys off a little bit more too because I feel like we have an extra day before the pen. So now day two might be 250, 280, fully stretching it out. The problem is, is the better shape a guy is in, the more he's going to want to start getting to his max distance on day two anyway. Yeah. So let's just say day two is 300 feet, no pull downs. Now, day three and four are interesting because you can actually pin on day three mm-hmm. and give yourself an extra day on the back end before your start. Yep. Or you can use day three as another good conditioning day, as you said, a field day. Yep. Start to get your pull downs going, but really set up day four. So now you're really optimizing the, the break or the gap into mm-hmm. your pen. Uh, maybe now, so on day four, now you're getting what I call beast mode. You're getting a yep. full long toss in, a full pull down in. Your bullpen to me is the icing on the cake do what you need to do. Now you have two days yep. to play with. So now day five might be, let's say, 180, 200 stretch out. Day six is optional. Again, 90 to 180 feet. Now day seven, you've had two days from your pen to really feel fresh and have yeah. a great long toss. And so yeah. to me, I, I just look at it like, as, as obviously, as, as you know, a critical word here is, is endurance and longevity. To me, this is how you get stronger through the season by having these gaps and, and yeah. this kind of a, of a rhythm. Absolutely. And that seven versus five day is, is a game changer. I mean, you and I both have had the conversations with, you know, basically high school and college guys where, you know, it's an adjustment going from a seven day rotation to a five, five. It's, it's all about making sure you're ready to go on day five days. So when you got seven, you're looking at development. Um, so it's, it's, it's a, it's a paradigm shift for sure. Um, this is, this has been awesome. Yeah. And I'm sorry. One, one thing too, cause it's, you just simulated a great, <laughs> point which is it's another reason why and and i hope i hope some professional teams are listening to this it's another reason why you want at least the first couple years to make sure you have your guys pen on day three because they're used to a gap between their start day and their pen day Mm -hmm. and so when they go into pro ball and we're already squeezing them by putting them on a five day they maybe more than anybody else need that extra day Mm -hmm. because it's closer to the rhythm of what they did in college and to have them pending on day two when they're used to having gaps, mm-hmm. um, to me is, um, it even amplifies to me the problem even more of, of the lack of recovery, um, and getting on the mound. And also, what does a pitcher do we, when you get them on a mound? Even if you say, well, day two, we can go a little lighter and whatever. And well, we both know that when a pitcher gets on a mound unconsciously, you know, you're going to probably get a little competitive unless you're a 10 year veteran. Mm-hmm. You're going to get a little competitive. There are people maybe watching. Yeah. You feel just by human nature that as a pitcher, you know, I need to cut some fastballs loose there. I need to throw some hammers there and cut them loose. And and so unfortunately, even if you quote unquote, and I know this is a big word with um, Glenn, you know, uh, the studies on perceived effort. And I'm sure you and I have talked about that too. It's just sort of day two. There's way more risk with quote unquote perceived, you know, um, perceived effort. Definitely. And managing that versus on day three, yep. <laughs> we don't have to worry about perceived effort because we actually want the effort for the most part because they're ready for it. Absolutely. 
that's um that's a that's a valid point and I I actually hadn't thought of it in that context for sure. Um but hey this was awesome. You know, we've we've gone uh, into much more detail than I ever expected. That's the nice thing about long tosses. It leads to so many other important discussions when you're talking <laughs> athleticism and range motion and and arm speed and all that fun stuff. So Alan, uh folks can find you on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Jager Sports. Yep. And then you've also got some some awesome online materials. Where's the best place for folks to start to, to learn more about a lot of the insights that you've shared today? Um, so much free information, um, at jagersports.com. I'm sorry. Jagersports.com is our website. There's an mm-hmm. article link. There is tons of free information. YouTube, we have long toss. Uh, you know, we have a lot of mental game stuff that's all free, easy to access. So that's, it's easy to find more of this information, um, just with a click. Yeah. And outstanding stuff. I can speak to it as not just a friend of Alan's, but also a consumer as information for, for a long time here. He's been very impactful for, for our players and, and a great resource to me. So definitely head to jagersports.com, check it out. Um, show him some love for some J bands. They, they, they didn't get any love on this, this show, but definitely an integral part of uh, our training arsenal as well. So everything from mental skills to, to long toss to actual equipment. Um, we got a lot of good stuff. So, um, check them out. I appreciate it, man. And, no. and I just want to say one thing too. Um, we go back a long way mm-hmm. and you've been instrumental for me. And I don't want to just say this cause it's your podcast, but I'm just saying this as, as friends that, you know, I appreciate you having me on, but at the same time, um, you know, you have been not only inspiring to me, but you've been extremely helpful with your insight. And so a lot of this stuff we talk about, mm-hmm. you know, you've had an influence on me as well. And so, um, I just want people out there to know that, uh, you know, we've had a chance to really share a lot over the years and, um, and we're both under the highest good, and I think that's the, the cool yeah. thing. What were the, what was the words you used earlier about not being this but being that when it comes to um, critiquing things or discussing things? Oh, it's, yeah. That, it's, if there's disagree and there's dislike, and you always you know you can always disagree politely, and but I think at the end of the day, you know, when you, a rising tide lifts all ships, if everybody's trying to make things better for the athletes in front of us, we're we're doing our job. Yep. So. And also, let's just let people know too, and it's not a shameless plug, but a plug, but. So much of this information I spent, you know, I put a lot of time and effort into um, our year-round throwing manual. Yeah, so there's, there's, there's just a lot of a lot of information. I try to keep it very, very clear and simple and easy to adapt and very individualistic. Even though there's a lot of suggestions in there, so I just want to make sure people know there's a resource that we have. It's called our year-round throwing manual, and I, and also I have to plug, you know, our mental game book because you know yeah. me. That's a that's near and dear to my heart, the mental game and. Um, but listen, man, I I just have to thank you for uh, having me on, and um, I always enjoy our time together. I always get better, and again, just uh, I really appreciate you having me on, buddy. This was lots of fun. Thanks for doing it, Alan. You know what, brother? We'll be in touch, man. For sure. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.